0: Every word of God is pure, and all scripture has been given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit for our instruction in righteousness. That portion that forms the basis for our meditation is found in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So far, our text. In Christ Jesus the greatest reformer ever the one who came from heaven as the way that we might be able to re- go to heaven the one who is the life and the one who spoke always the truth grace and peace be unto you dear fellow redeemed our text deals with the topic of slavery and freedom it's a text that's been twisted and misused in a number of different ways Sometimes it's been used on the political scene as a slogan to try and bring about some social social justice, to eliminate racial inequality, that there should be a freedom that comes from knowing the truth. Other times it's used as, by universities even as a slogan, the truth shall make you free. You'll know that if you come to our university and you get our education and you know you get your knowledge from us, then you'll be made free. But the Savior isn't talking about such small issues. He's talking about really big issues. In the context, here in chapter 8, you remember the chapter opens with the woman having the very serious problem of being caught in adultery. She's caught in adultery, and the Old Testament legal prescription was a stoning, and it was about to happen when Jesus interceded. That's the context of sin, of sin affecting the soul, not of chains affecting the body. As the Savior goes on then, he delivers a very powerful sermon. When this particular thing happens, there's a number of people who want to kill Jesus. And he unfolds and it tells them things, such things as, He is the light of the world. He has been sent by the Father. He's going to be lifted up on the cross. And if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to die in your sins. Then comes this text here. So it's a gross injustice and twisting of scriptures to take this topic of slavery and freedom and take it over into the political realm or take it over into some kind of study by human beings in some field of knowledge. Jesus has got not one single syllable in this section about the Roman government. He doesn't have one single syllable in this section about social injustice in the world. He's talking about the problem that human beings have with God, the problem that's created by sin and how it's solved in Jesus, the one Savior. And to that end, then, he reforms our lives on a daily basis by telling us the truth, by telling us the truth first about sin and then about his work as Savior and also then the truth about our ongoing need for his word. May the Spirit bless our study of the word he's recorded. We pick it up at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Most assuredly, that's that double word in the King James, verily, verily. In the Greek, amen, amen. This is certain. This is sure. This is, for, this is firm. This is positive. Another way we might say it is, pay attention. This is an important truth. And the truth is this. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. We can never fully grasp the concept of what sin is without the truth that Jesus sends. Oftentimes we think of sin as maybe a minor defect because we're dealing with it all the time. We think of it, get kind of used to it. We think it's a minor defect. As if you were taking a math test and you had a math problem and you get the wrong answer and you could use an eraser and get the right answer. But here's the reality of sin. Once you get the wrong answer on the math, that first math problem, then every math problem you do from there on is going to be wrong. That's the impact of sin. Going off to spelling bee, the way it usually works is you get a chance to spell a word, and if you don't spell that word right, you'll get another chance to spell a few other words. But this is the reality of sin. It's not like misspelling one word and then starting over with another word. Misspelling one word, sin, is that you'll misspell every, uh, every word for the rest of your life. That's the impact of sin. And the Savior tells us that if you commit a sin, you become a slave of sin. This slavery is severe. This slavery is massive. The Bible uses different pictures for sin, and I thought I might just take a moment to kind of illustrate how that works. the Holy Spirit has got some terms it uses for sin. One term that's the most frequent is the bullseye, where God has set up the target, and every time you miss the target, that's a sin. The target, of course, is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Another concept for sin is it's a line, and you need to walk that line. And every time you step off the line, the line is the Ten Commandments, that's a trespass or transgression. But the Holy Spirit <clears throat> delves into the language and gives us even more pictures to help us understand sin. One is iniquity. Literally, it means to be a pervert. It means to be twisted. And God looked down at the human race and said, you guys are just twisted in your thinking and the way you look at life. You're all out of whack. Another term that's used for sin, it's rather graphic, is, the, is a we, we would maybe transliterate it as raucous. You're loud, you're out of control, you're you're just wild. Another term used by the Holy Spirit is the term to be a rebel, to rebel. God is in authority, and we human beings have rebelled against him. Other terms include a wayward walking, a wandering, a negligence, an unfaithfulness take a moment to look at all the terms used in the Bible for the one concept of sin and you'll realize looking at it from this angle or that angle or this angle or this angle it is a huge massive problem for us human beings but then the Bible also looks at it another way too It looks at the way of when you're born you're born dead in trespasses and sins and that original sin produces all manner of actual sin the actual sin can happen in my head by my thinking it can happen in my talking it can happen in my doing that original sin puts us into the problem that in our heart that's the problem and out of the heart comes evil thoughts murders adulteries fornications thefts false witness and blasphemy it answers the question that the world is trying to figure out is it hereditary or is it environment it isn't the environment. The problem that you see in the world, all that's going on, comes right out of the, very, out of the human heart. And then Scripture has another way of looking at it. When it's taught, we talk about sometimes the phrase, sins of omission and sins of commission, where God tells us, I do not want you to do these things, but I do want you to do these things. And you can stop off at any of the Ten Commandments, and you can see in most of them, Martin Luther has that concept He'll explain very clearly, we should fear and love God that we do not do these things, but we should fear and love God that we do these things. And here comes the problem for us. Sometimes we can uh, work pretty hard at avoiding committing a sin in deed, in action, so that we avoid troubles with the state of Wisconsin. But God's expectation is not just that we would avoid doing what's wrong, but that we would do what is right in our thoughts. And that's where our sins really, really pile up. One individual is likened it to this there's not enough toilet paper in all the world where on which I could list my sins. And so you see the vast, huge problem of sin. And Scripture is so plain. Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. This is, amen, amen. This is for sure and certain. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. But he also goes on then to point out, and it's somewhat significant, that after that broad picture, we come back to the narrow focus of the pulpit because there is one way to handle the problem of sin. And the Savior tells us the truth about that too, that he's the one way to handle that. We're at verse 35. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. A second maxim, axiom from this particular text. A slave does not abide in the house forever. A slave might get sold sometime some for something else. A slave might come to the end of their period of slavery <clears throat> and have worked off their debt, but a slave does for sure does not abide in the house forever. But the son, a son abides forever. A son would eventually become the heir. The son would eventually inherit everything. A son is, is a part of the household. A slave is not. And then comes the Savior's point, verse 36. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. That problem with sin, the Son of God came to make us free. And there's a whole section of Bible passages over and over repeated in the Old Testament and New Testament that tell us if you want forgiveness for that huge problem, there's only one way to have it. There's only one way to receive it, and that's through Jesus. And on that section in the bulletin, you'll find a number of Bible passages connecting the thought. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, And he's the propitiation for our sins, the satisfactory payment for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In Christ Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. And the scriptures connect that topic of forgiveness with blood, the blood of Jesus. The passage in Corinthians, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Savior makes it abundantly clear that in him we have freedom from the slavery of sin. And when he makes us free, we are free indeed. But it only happens in Jesus. In our text, we're introduced to a group of people who thought they could get that freedom apart from Jesus. Verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? These individuals thought that they could be made free because they had the right color of skin. They thought they could be made free because they had the right kind of blood flowing through their veins that they got from their parents. And they forgot that whole concept of original sin. If their parents were sinful, they would be born sinful. But they thought, no, they could be doing this on their own. In the verses which follow our text, the Savior takes this thought head-on. You guys think you are free? You think you can go to heaven because you're Abraham's descendants? It's not going to work. They reply, they double down. We are Abraham's descendants. Jesus says, that's not going to work. They triple down. We're children of the God. And Jesus then becomes very clear in his language. Very clear in his language. He says to them, verse 42, if, you were, uh, if, you were, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. And again then, in verse 44, You are your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. This is the love of the Savior at its height. He could have easily said, Oh, you've got your thoughts. I've got my thoughts. You've got your way to heaven. I've got my way to heaven. But he recognized they're not going to be going to heaven. They're going to be going to hell. And he spoke very clear language. And he didn't speak it in love. I mean, he didn't speak it in anger. He didn't speak it to get back at him. He didn't speak it because he was name-calling. He spoke because it was the truth. They were not children of the Father, they were children of the devil. They were on the wrong side of things, and they were on their way to hell. A stern warning is speaking to them. Jesus, as he did in the first portion of our study, tells us about our sin. He told these individuals about their sin. But he also went on to tell them about how he was the one Savior for them. So what are you going to do about that problem of sin? Are you can go to the blood of Jesus or the blood of the family tree? Well, here's how you can tell what's happening. We go to verse 47 following our text. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Here's another axiom. If you're a child of God, you want to hear the word of God. Those individuals weren't hearing the word of God because they didn't belong to God. And so you need to give yourself a daily test. What am I doing with the word of God? Do I listen to it? Do I love it? Can I not wait to hear my father speak? Or is this something, I don't want to pay attention to that stuff. So the fact that you're here today indicates you recognize, I got the problem with sin. I need you to hear the word of God. I need to hear about Jesus, my Savior. And that takes us then to the third of the truths which Jesus expresses. He tells us the truth about our sin and our slavery to it. He tells us the truth about our freedom from sin that's found only in him. But he also tells us about our ongoing need for the word of God. Verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, we're going to have to stop for just a moment on that first phrase. As you go on, we hear just a couple of verses later that these individuals are arguing with Jesus. It appears there's two groups of people. Chapter 8 starts out with one group of Jewish people. And Jesus, I remember, gave those Bible truths to them. The Father has sent me. I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. I'm going to be a Savior. Without me, you'll die in your sins. And then verse 30 tells us some of those people believed on Jesus. So he's talking to those people now. And later on then, when he brings up the topic freedom, some of the other crowd that didn't believe in Jesus starts arguing with him and, again, tries, seeks to kill him. So we're at verse 31. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you abide, the word abide means to remain, to stay. Take you back to your confirmation day when you took particular vows, and took vows that you would be diligent in the use of the means of grace. That's what this is referring to. That you will abide in the word of the Savior, that you'll live there, that the, script, that the Bible won't be some uh, fancy display on the coffee table, but it'll be something that you use and read and study, that you'll hear the word of God in school and church and Bible class, that you'll live in the scriptures. And if someone were to ask you, where do you live? As a child of God, you could say, well, you could say, I guess you live in Eau Claire or Altoona or Chippewa Falls, but a child of God really could answer, I live in the word of God. And the Savior specifies, if you abide in my word, so how wretched is it that some university started by human beings would take this passage and mutilate the thing to apply to what they're teaching. Jesus is saying, if you abide in my word, in the thing, if you abide in the, the things that I have taught, that have been recorded in the scriptures for you, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You are my followers. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth about ourselves, the truth about Jesus. The Savior knew we would have a need to live in the Scriptures. One of the problems those people were facing, those Jewish people were facing, was that the devil was active in spreading lies. And they had swallowed some of the lies of Satan. Satan. Well, Satan is still around. He's still in this earth. He's still roaming around. And he's got a host of evil angels as well. And they are still spreading lies. Some of the very same lies. In fact, it goes all the way back to the the lie that he first spoke to Adam and Eve when he talked to them about, oh, you can do that and you won't die. And he talks to us about, you can sin and you won't die. It's an outright lie. The truth of the matter is, if you commit sin, you're going to be a slave of sin the rest of your life. So there's that truth that we we need the ongoing study of God's word because we have an ongoing enemy in the devil, who is active with his lies and with his contradictions about Jesus being the only way to be saved. But we also live in a very evil world. And we can debate how evil the world has become if it's much if it's many times more evil than it was back then. But back then too they had a world. They had a world (coughs) too that contradicted God's word and they, we live in a world that contradicts God's word and we live in a world where increasingly what God calls sin the world says "Oh, don't even worry about that what, the world, what, what God calls sin the world's trying to redefine it that's not really sin as if the topic of sin is subject to a majority vote it's not God says this is the truth and it doesn't make any difference whether any human being in the world accepts it or believes it This remains the truth. It remains the truth in the days of Adam and Eve, in the days of Noah, in the days of David, in the days of Paul, in the days of Martin Luther, and in our day. The truth about sin never changes. We need God's word because we live in a world where they're constantly trying to change the moral standard. We live in a world that is hostile to the message. There's only one Savior, Jesus Christ, You can't be serious about that. You mean there's only one way to get to heaven? We didn't make the rule up. Jesus is the one who said, no one comes unto the Father but by me. And we need the ongoing study of God's word because we carry around with us the most wretched of our enemies. We carry around with us our own sinful flesh. You're going to go to bed with your sinful flesh at night. You're going to wake up in the morning with your sinful flesh you can come to church with your sinful flesh, you'll leave church with your sinful flesh. There's only one way to get rid of the sinful flesh, and that's death. That's when you get to dump sinful flesh in the grave, and it's buried. And that's why in Martin Luther's, another portion of Martin Luther's small catechism, he outlines for us in the topic of baptism that that signifies that daily we should drown the old man, the sinful flesh, with contrition and repentance, and that a new man should daily arise. We need an ongoing use of God's word because we have a great spiritual enemy within us. And that spiritual enemy is so, the heart is so deceptive. So at first the heart says you don't need Jesus. And then when the Holy Spirit brings Jesus into our heart, our sinful flesh wants to go ahead and build on that. Yeah, you got that Holy Spirit. He came to you because you're a little bit better than some of the other sinners. That's not what Jesus said. And uh, when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and we start to do prayer, and we start to bring church offerings, and we start to love, do acts of kindness and love to our neighbor, our flesh likes to raise the hand, look how good I am getting to be. We carry around with us the great spiritual enemy of our flesh, and we have an ongoing need to be reminded there is no difference in human beings. All of them have sinned. God doesn't go ahead and look at a curve and say, oh, you've got 90%, and this person over here is only at 70%. You're not much better. It's either 100% perfection or we're all in the same failure category. Because of those great spiritual enemies, the Savior said, you have an ongoing need. You need to live in my word because you're faced in a world that's got very great spiritual evil powers. But the good news is, the Savior promised, you will know the truth, and truth will make you free. As we live in God's word, he protects and defends us from Satan, the world, and our own sinful flesh. A reminder for us, then, about there are serious types of slavery, there are serious types of freedom, and then there's a really serious category involving sin death, freedom, and life. May God grant to us that we continue to go to the great reformer and listen to him as he tells us the truth about our sin and our slavery, as he tells us the truth about he being the one to bring to us freedom, and how he tells us again that we need ongoing study of the word. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely The redemption is in Christ Jesus, who God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Amen.